Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and my guest today is Debbie Anderson. Debbie works exclusively as a clinical neuropsychologist. She trained at the University of Melbourne and has practiced in Queensland since completing her course in 1989. She initially worked in public hospital settings before moving into full-time private work. She evaluates clients both at a referral of treating doctors and as an independent expert in medical legal cases. She enjoys the challenge of fully evaluating complex cases and has given evidence in legal proceedings on a number of occasions. She has several publications and conference presentations relating to this work, which demonstrate her commitment to evidence-based best practice. Debbie is also very active in the Australian Psychological Society and most recently chaired the College of Clinical Neuropsychologists Annual Conference and is currently the chair of the Queensland section of the College of Clinical Neuropsychologists. She's passionate about training the next generation of professionals and undertakes casual lecturing at the university in Brisbane, lecturing the students in their program in clinical neuropsychology and assessment skills. Debbie brings to this conversation today incredible breadth of knowledge and experience and very interesting for, for me to understand what a neuropsychologist does from a day-to-day uh, practice level, but also for laypersons to try and understand when might they go out and engage the services of a neuropsychologist, which I think is extremely important when someone needs to. Without further ado, please welcome Debbie Anderson. Debbie, welcome to the show. A big thank you for coming on and taking the time to talk to us about the world of neuropsychology. Thank you for having me. Look, it's really exciting to, to have you here as one of our guests in that I know very little about neuropsych. Uh, obviously, it's a term that we've all studied and have you know, heard, but very few of us uh, have really dealt you know, with referrals to neuropsychs and the like. Yes, we discuss, discuss this in, in my clinic um, and, and in other areas, but I don't think very many of us know the ins and outs. And obviously, you're having you know, 30 plus years in, in, in this world. Uh, I don't think there's anyone better to, to you know, give us a bit of a rundown and also find out about your passion. So thank you for coming on. You're very welcome. Well, look, uh, I've been doing neuropsychology, as you said, for over 30 years. So clearly, I was a child prodigy. Um, and I don't like to uh, let that out too often. But... Um, Look, what, and I still enjoy neuropsychology every day of the week. So I think that that um, passion is something that has never gone away for me, which I'm, I'm proud to say. So in essence, neuropsychology is all about understanding the relationship 
between cognitive function, so thinking, memory, that type of stuff, and brain and and neurological disorders. So anyone who has some type of brain injury, neurological disorder, or even a develop, developmental disorder can come to a neuropsychologist really for an assessment to understand that, to understand the effects of that condition. Neuropsychology typically, and especially when I first trained, was very much about diagnosis. It was about saying if this person had this disorder or that disorder. And the remnants of that continue today in that often NDIS, for example, needs a clear diagnosis. But uh, over time, neuropsychology has moved towards this idea of helping people understand the effects of their condition and what they can do about it. So I personally work in the assessment diagnostic kind of space. I fully admit I'm not so good at the rehab because that's just not my personal style. So, um, But that is a part of what neuropsychology does in certain settings. I've always gravitated towards the whole diagnostic idea of does this person have a dementia is there ongoing cognitive deficits from this mild brain injury, that type of thing? So um, early in my career, I worked in uh, acute hospital settings to really aid that. So it was a very fast-paced way of learning a lot about different kinds of disorders and applying what we knew in that setting. And over time, I've moved into private practice, which is what I do now full-time, and uh, um, ultimately have moved towards medico-legal type work. So answering those same questions, but within the legal context. So both civil, where people are making personal injuries claims, and criminal, where they've been charged with offences. And there are questions by the court about this person's level of function, for example, and how it might affect them. Wonderful. What, what are the most common presentations that... Uh, you see in your practice and maybe you can also talk to us about what you saw in the hospital setting versus in your private setting why are people most commonly uh, coming why what sort of instigates it you know is it, it might be a motor vehicle accidents you know a, a tbi um you know something yes. that, 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 that that's kind of occurred um so yeah what 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 usually comes onto your table um and why well, typically uh, you've, you've hit on, so I guess the first thing I have to say is that my practice is primarily with adults. So um, a paediatric neuropsych would see a very different set of reasons why people would attend, which is usually, I'll just briefly say, injury, neurological disorder and developmental disorder and lots of learning difficulties, ADHD, that kind of thing. But when we come to adults, we ordinarily are dealing with sort of, you know, a developed brain that something's happened to. So the most typical and most frequent uh, disorder that any adult neuropsychologist would see would be an acquired brain injury. Ordinarily, the one we see most of is a traumatic brain injury like a motor vehicle accident, but depending where they're coming from. So I think of people as the different referral streams. So we have the, the people that have had a, a motor vehicle accident, and of course, at the moment, lots of people are falling off e-scooters and getting very nasty injuries. So that's uh, been an increase. There's also um, 
the other group that we, we see a bit is people that are sent who've had workplace injuries. So the workplace injuries might involve a motor vehicle accident, but they often also involve different mechanisms that cause the same problem. So falls, so falls off work sites, off scaffolding, that kind of thing, um, being struck by something could be an assault, but often it's in a workplace when something's swinging around and hitting people on the head. Um, so in the workplaces, they're the kinds of things that we often see. In um, people that are coming referred by their private doctor, it often would be more of a sports injury, sports concussion, or um, other kinds of um, vehicle accidents that aren't uh, covered in the usual insurance way. So bicycle accidents, falling off bikes, being hit by a car, that kind of thing. Uh, actual assaults as well, uh, you know, person-to-person assaults. So all of those. So we get lots of reasons why people might have a head injury. Oh, falling off ladders at home, that's another one. Uh, so there are lots of reasons why they can have a traumatic brain injury. So that is by far the largest quantum of what we see. But the other things that we would also have, in, and, and I guess I, would, I operate a general neuropsych diagnostic practice, if you like, that isn't just me, um, is where there's some type of neurological question. So some kind of condition has arisen. So uh, perhaps a young person's developed multiple sclerosis um, or a person might have developed Parkinson's disease those types of things that might have an impact on cognition and therefore their way of life, decisions they have to make about working, not working, do they need uh, to apply for disability support, that type of thing. So those questions come up. And then as, as we get into the older part of the population, then we also have the other types of neurological or age-related disorders. So does the person have a type of dementia, for example? Has there been a, a decline in cognitive function? They're getting more forgetful, those types of things. So we certainly, that, that comprises a, a large subgroup that need to come for, usually for private assessment because the waiting was so quite long at the hospitals. And then we also have the subgroup of the NDIS uh, type assessment. So um, they can they tend to be at the extreme ends. So people with the very severe brain injuries and the significant developmental disorders. So they they are often just you know review assessments for the purposes of of um, of the the NDIS, but also uh, when people are applying for the disability support pension based on the intellectual or the cognitive component, they would come to us for an assessment as well. It sounds like there's almost three categories, at least that I'm kind of hearing. One oh. is the the head trauma scenario, whether it's, you know, at work or from an assault, a fall, sporting injury, you know, there's a physical impact to, to the head and, yep. you know, a concussion occurs and, and, and possible cognitive issues thereafter the second one is is there's a neurological question you know which which kind of comes from a, a disease model like what is there a disease that's impacting someone's um, you know, cognitive functions and then finally uh, almost like 
and I know this might kind of bleed into the disease model, but it's it, it's where people begin to decay, where naturally and normally, you know, in that in the geriatric space, um, you know, you and I will fall into that category. I, I hope um, that one day our memories are decaying because you know we we have been on this earth for long enough and and had the privilege to do so. But with that can often come you know that Alzheimer's dementia and I'm, I'm assuming many others but they're the most sort of prominently known um, categories exactly exactly and I guess the other the other group is the developmental disorders that continue from childhood as well so there probably is a fourth category yeah thank you thank you um, like attention deficit disorder is is definitely a question in adults that is coming up more frequently at the moment and yeah, so the effects of those, what probably would have been seen in childhood often continues into adulthood and brings in different questions or, or difficulties for the person. So that then would bring them back for an assessment with us as well. So that would probably be an additional category, but you're absolutely right about the three that you identified. Yes. No, thank you. Look, it's, it's, it, it's an interesting space. How do you go about looking at uh, someone's functioning and and i'm assuming most clients come to you without a baseline you know uh, therefore there must be you know some norms and and, and the like maybe you could just talk us through uh uh, maybe even pick a case that 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 Mm. would come and and how you would approach that and what tests and so on that that would would sort of um uh, be be standard or best sure um well and 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 it's a really complicated and difficult question because we want to honour the fact that someone has often, you know, done lots of things in their life and it's often frustrating when people read our reports that 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 history comes down to a single number of I think this person was average, low average, whatever, before this injury occurred and the people people reading that or consuming that information are often like, well, how did you get that number? So this is a very good question because it is on people's mind. And the first thing I say to people is, I didn't know you before this happened, so I need to talk to somebody who did know you because they're in a much better position than me to see what's changed. So my view is that it's best practice to interview somebody who knew the person before the injury so that is usually a family member, it can be a partner, spouse, if they're older, it can be a child. And uh, ordinarily, I request that somebody comes with the person so that I can talk to them. So that that gives me perhaps that's, well, not perhaps, it is an informal way of understanding what the person was like, but it tells me a lot about their level of function, but it also tells me about their personality and how that might have changed because part of brain injury can be that personality changes. And although I'm going to come back to your question, you know, it's hard to capture that on a test. So that observation from the family or friends is quite important. So then we we look at, well, what does the literature say about how we estimate? And the the fancy word is pre-morbid function. So we're assuming something's happened. Uh, In the case of a head injury would be a good example of that or or the onset. I had someone the other day where um, they had fairly young onset Parkinson's disease. 
And so a question had arisen about whether they were able to continue to do safety critical work because it had been noticed that they were quite forgetful. So the question I had to ask was, what was this person like before? Were they always a bit forgetful? Were they always a bit impulsive? Those types of things. So interviewing the family was important. And then we moved on to some formal measures of pre-morbid function. And uh, my reading of the literature is that the, the best way to do that is an uh, uh, an algorithm, so a complicated mathematical calculation that includes a whole bunch of information that is the person's educational level, the type of work they've done, um, and their, unfortunately, their reading skills because um, there's been lots of research in the neuropsych literature over the years that shows that word reading skills tends to be a, um, a skill that is resistant to the effects of brain injury and most types of dementias. So once an adult's been through school and they've learnt to read, that apart from, and the exception is, strokes of a specific spot in a particular part of the brain, but let's, ex let's not worry about that for the moment. For the most part, <laughs> people learn to read and if they don't have a bleed in that part of their brain, then that usually is quite resistant to the effects of brain injury, even fairly serious brain injuries. So that is added into this, this, this calculation. So the test that we rely on is developed for that purpose. And we, you know, the, it's about the person has to just pronounce the words correctly and it tends to reflect things like if someone's had a lot of formal education, they will will have come across the words before. If they haven't had so much formal education, they won't have. So we do have to think about whether this is a good indication. So the exception I often come across is um, men of a certain age who went to grade 10 at school, weren't very, were usually okay at maths, not keen on academic reading and such. So their reading may not be great, <clears throat> but they were very skilled in the more practical areas. So they've pursued a skilled trade, for example. So in the algorithm, that element, allow it kind of ups their score a little bit. It takes into account their reading mightn't be great, but they were able to pass all the exams they got the certification as a skilled trade, so that sort of ups the ups the calculation, or the the estimate a little bit. So we try to be fair in taking into account all of those things. And but you probably that it looks at those. My apologies, jumping in. The mm. fact that it looks at those three areas is, is yeah. quite important. I'm, I'm gathering that academic achievements do stand for something. And, and and so do life roles, life careers, responsibilities, uh, because there's a level of functioning that comes with upholding a particular uh, role uh, because you need to be able to, to um, you know, have many capacities to, to achieve, you know, some roles more so than, than others. And then lastly, as you say, is very resistant to, to you know, most injuries, you know, is that reading level, which in many ways, uh, tells us about exposure to one's life roles and academic performances. So it kind of gives us a nice uh, 
baseline to start with, you know, which is only one area of what I'm hearing and understanding is, you know, a battery of, of, of uh, data that you're bringing together to, to um, try and understand someone's, you know, pre, pre, uh, pre-morbid um, functioning. Exactly, exactly. And so that all goes into this calculation. So we do finally end up with some kind of a number, but it reflects all of that. And so if someone's had perhaps not very good education and reading, but has run their own business effectively for many years, again, that gets included in there that, uh, to reflect that. Um, the, the other thing I was going to say is I'm very conscious, though, that that is a reflection of a whole set of assumptions about the person's exposure both to English and to the formal education system. So <clears throat> I, I guess I just have to acknowledge <laughs> that there are exceptions, that if people, if English is not somebody's first language, then it's very hard for them to acquire, mm. but particularly if they haven't had education in English, those language reading skills. If they've been, unfortunately, in family circumstances that have meant that there's been poor attendance at school and poor support for education, then, again, that person may not have developed much in the way of reading, but they also may not have had much formal education. So we have to take into account that the assumptions we make about all of those things are not always true for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and we there are ways of, for example, we can do the we can do the calculation without the formal education or without the reading, oh, sorry, without the reading level. If we um, it's a clinical assessment, right? And 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 in there, like like a clinical psychologist uh, works with their clients, you're taking there's history taking and there's a context that needs to be built in there. And obviously, as a migrant, uh, it's going to be very different if you're a migrant that you know arrived in the uh, you know early two thousands versus if you're a migrant and let's say you're in you know your early twenties um, versus maybe a migrant that came in you know the eighties and they um, you know were already forty five <clears throat> years old um, they weren't going to have necessarily the opportunities or the brain at that time to be as malleable to pick up language for example so it's a big thorough um, uh, history taking clinical sort of consideration yeah wow wow a lot goes yeah. into how much time would go into in, into that interviewing obviously the client and then maybe a spouse uh, I'm not sure whether there's other other persons that would generally be um, consulted ordinarily I would uh, as my practice is that I usually ask the spouse or the family member to come along and I ordinarily usually, talks to them about 20 minutes, half an hour. So it's not an enormous amount of time, but it's still enough to get the story straight. Sure. Because because I do a lot of legal work, most people are used to it. They've already been through this with other people, so yes. they're, they've, they've got it straight. Here's what happened. Here's what they were like. Um, so there's less of that sort of hunting around to think about the, the contrast, for example. And then the person I would interview them, perhaps uh, remembering that I often have access to a lot of, data already so when uh, one of the great things about uh, what we do is we're often compiling 
lots of medical information and hospital records and other reports. And so a lot of information is ordinarily available to us before we see the person. It, it's less, uh, I mean, it can be, particularly in the more private, you know, query neurological questions. The person may come with nothing. So we have to really sure. take a good long history and that might take an, an hour or so. Um, sometimes what I do though is I, you know, take a bit of a history and do some tests and then we get chatting again. And, and so we distribute that throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So the assessment might take several, well, does take several hours. So that includes all of the cognitive tests that we'll probably talk about in a moment. But um, so often we can be a little less formal about some of the interview things. So we might start off with a bit of a formal interview, tell me what happened, tell me what's changed. But then over time, we might stop and have a cuppa or we might have a bit of a chat about what they do in everyday life and how that's to change and things like that so that we slowly build the picture up over the day rather than the person feeling in what can be very emotional that they've mm. kind of laid it all out on the table and now they've got to do work. <laughs> they've got to think and concentrate. So I try to be a little bit subtle about how I get some of the information. <laughs> and that's really important. I know that, you know, obviously in, in more sort of structured um uh, uh, assessments, for example, with children, you know, uh, it's they, they, these tests are often you know, um, split into two days or over a lunchtime to give people a break. There, there, there's enormous cognitive load that goes with trying to, you know, tell your story. You know, you're and, and all people are invested in in trying to, you know, get the get the story straight, get the message across as accurately as possible. You know, I know when I've been to medical you know, persons myself, you're completely overwhelmed and, and, and vulnerable and, and you walk out of these appointments. You don't know what's even been said. You know, what did the doctor say? Well, you know, you give some sort of vague thing. <clears throat> you can't remember. You're, you know, you're under such such immense load um, because, you know, you're desperate, you're vulnerable, you're, you're, you're so concerned. So, you know, I think that approach, you know, De- definitely, you know, sounds like a really lovely one, and obviously something that you've honed over over many years to to make it a gentle experience where you can still collect data, but it takes the pressure off, and, and, and um, you know, it's a bit, bit more humane, a bit more. Um, uh, uh, well, it's not that it's not humane; it's it, it's a little bit more compassionate understanding of, of what they're going through. Absolutely, I, I try to be conscious of that because. There's two two points I probably should make there is one is that as part of head injury, um, there's often a gap in people's memory. So it's upsetting for them to admit that there's mm. these days that they can't remember. And and often it's well, in early in early stages of recovery, it hasn't really been explained to them that's normal. And they feel somehow inadequate because they can't remember and everyone's asking them, well, what happened? What, you know, what did this person say? So, yes, for people with a head injury, all of those anxieties that you mentioned uh, are completely valid, but then they're doubled because they genuinely have a gap in their memory, plus their memory was quite poor early on. So not only was there the overwhelm, there was that their memory wasn't even working properly to remember what the doctor said. So all of those things combine and then part of their injury might be that their thinking is a little bit disorganised. So although 
I like to take the history in chronological order. The patient <laughs> may not be able to think in chronological order. And so it becomes a challenge for them. It mm. becomes very difficult. Um, and I was going to make another point about that. Now I've forgotten it. It'll come back to me in a moment. Um, no, that's fine. Maybe, maybe progress onto the <clears throat> assessment side because I also want to pick up on, on the personality side. I've written that mm. down to come back to it because that, 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 that's extremely, I think, um, uh, interesting uh, as I know that for all the loved ones, uh, oh. personality changes can be, you know, can cause a lot of grief um, and loss and, and, and all sorts of things. But uh, let's maybe just continue on with the assessment side before we get carried oh. away because I, <laughs> I, I could go to the deep end on that one. Well, I've remembered my point too. It was that in legal settings, sometimes people are pretty much forced to come for the assessment. So that adds a dimension to that whole feeling of overwhelm. Plus they maybe don't want to be there. They're yes. sort of, it's not against their will, but, you know, their lawyer's like, we have to do this for your case, whether you like it or not. And so there's this, you know, that that's a difficult factor for anyone to deal with. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we have to be a little bit <clears throat> careful about how much we push people to yeah. you know, to, to work on our terms, <laughs> and, and, and the and, and the reality is the context is that's occurred to them, you know, fifteen times before or fifty exactly. times before, where they're forced to, and you know, all of us know that when our autonomy is taken away from us, it, it is not pleasant, and and it's not an easy space to be in. So you know, you certainly have your work cut out for you, in in, in even you know, someone uh, wanting to be there uh, at times. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So the, the 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 assessment, you know, part, and obviously we're kind of running a bit of a, a uh, you know, fake case, so so, so to speak. Um, uh, the assessment side would would commonly look at, uh, I suppose, the cognitive functioning. Obviously, you've established a. a an appreciation of baseline, what someone might have uh, held in the past, and then yeah, then it's 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 really your job to try and find out where are they at, at present. Um, uh, what are the sorts of tests that you you um, perform in in that general uh, acquired brain injury type scenario um, to to try and test for. And, and what are we testing for? You know, memory. You know, uh, uh, do we go down the you know uh, all the subscales of you know verbal comprehension, reading comprehension, etc. All through the sort of IQ type um, you know tests. Maybe you can talk us through. Sure. Well, the the prelude I give to all the patients is this: it's that we are going to assess cogn uh, cognitive function. Uh, especially memory function by giving them new things to remember. Mm -hmm. But we also look at other areas of thinking, problem solving, concentration. So to the patient, it feels like a lot of schoolwork. And I always explain that they're not expected to know everything. They're not expected to get everything right, but it's important that they do their best. So we, so with memory, um, I rely because because of doing a lot of legal work, I have to defend everything in court. So I try to use the most psychometrically robust measures I can. So that's the Wexler scales. So 
for most people, if they're capable of it, we do the full Wexler memory scale. So how that works is I give people new information. So I might read them a story. I might show them some pictures and they have to learn that. So I might read it out and then they say the story back to me. And then we might come back to it a little while later and say, hey, remember that story I read? What can you remember of it now? And they're like, oh, we've been doing other things in between. And so it's to see about whether they can learn, acquire new information, but can they retain it when they're in the back of their mind? Yeah. So we look at that and we, um, which takes, you know, quite a long time. And then we also look at general intellect, as you mentioned. So again, we do a full Wexler adult, well, I do adults, uh, intelligence scale. And people are, again, a little bit worried. They're like, oh, no, this is about my IQ. And, you know, I, an IQ score is part of this because we have to think about where they were before, how are they now. But it's not about that. It's about looking at the different cognitive functions that make up that intellect. And so we look at verbal skills with the, the you know, um, uh, knowledge of meaning of words, general knowledge, that type of thing, reasoning with words. But we look at the more practical things, so putting puzzles together, um, working against the clock to put the puzzles together, um, uh, moving things around in their mind, that type of thing. So the very practical, so you don't have to have, you know, you can be good at, uh, you know, building things and do well on those tests. We look at attention and concentration, so working memory. So I might say some numbers to the person and they have to say them back to me or they have to say them backwards so that they've moved them around in their mind. You've got to keep them in your mind to do it. So that's that concentration. Um, And we look at speed of responding. So quickly filling in a code or looking for information on a page. Debbie, just you talking this through increases my heart rate right i mean that's that's the kind of context that that that, that people put themselves under even though we, we we do a good job of not just saying look this is kind of like school there, there isn't a performance level we're asking you to meet um it's just rather just uh, finding out where you're at today <clears throat> it, it, it's interesting you sort of even just talking through in my mind i'm going gosh you know i'm no good at that that would be yeah, all these sort of natural things that that that, that come up, and, and and thankfully this is why yeah all these things are normed, um, yes. because everyone's under the you know the, the same general conditions um, because we're all so frightened about you know how am I going to perform and what does it mean she's going to expose my weaknesses, my failings, my identity of what I've held on to for many years, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's it, it's quite um quite daunting, yeah. It is quite daunting for people and I think for the, the person on the other side of my very large desk, the, um, the, it's doubled by uh, uh, the fact that we're not allowed to give them feedback mm. as we do mm. the tests. So by not being able to say if you're right or wrong, you can't give people that reassurance. You're, we're supposed to keep a bit of a poker face and, and not be, you know, oh, you'll be right. Um, so one of the things, you know, I, I talk about, particularly for older people, because you mentioned about the norms, I always say to them, look, um, no one expects you to have the memory that you had when you were 20 years old. None of us do. <laughs> I'm going to compare you to other people your age. 
and people often feel a bit of relief then because that was one of the yeah. things they're they're often scared about that they'll look silly in front of me which is what you sort of mentioned and that it'll and especially for the people who haven't had a lot of formal education like because I've said to them oh it's going to be a bit like school that often yes. makes them super worried and I often spend a little bit more time with them on that you know there will be things they're good at I have to ask them the things they're not going to be good at but we're not going to worry about that we know that wasn't their thing don't worry yeah yeah so when you've collated all of obviously done a, you know, a history and spoken to you know someone that can be a bit more objective and has known them you've done the tests that you've you know considered are, are going to be best practice for what their presentation uh, is uh, what happens what happens next ah well uh, well sorry i just um a couple of other things we do cover usually in the assessment are uh, higher level thinking, so executive functions, so planning, organising. So the the Wexler scales don't really cover that very well, so we usually have some additional tests. And I really I talk to people about the idea of I'm going to push you to your limit. I need to find where your limit is. Your limit might be okay, but I just need to find where it is. So because these tests are quite upsetting. Mm. Sometimes in them they actually get feedback and the feedback is they're getting things wrong, which is the nature of the test. But, you know, people, mm. we, we have to look at people's tolerance to that because, you know, in a workplace sure. you do get feedback. And, and so and by virtue of finding where uh, someone is at, you almost have to take them to the point of, well, you have to take them to the point of yes. failure. So everyone has to fail at every one of these um, <clears throat> to, to find out where are they. And it doesn't matter if someone's, you know, at, uh, you know, general intelligence, the IQ of, you know, this particular subscale, they're in the extremely high range. Um, they still fail, you know, the, eventually they're challenged to the point um, that they are incapable of, of you know, their, their, their you know, memory doesn't achieve that or, or you know, whatever it is that we're, we're, we're testing. So everyone has to fail is, is, is um, the objective so that you know what is the upper limit under these conditions. You're 100% right. And I sometimes, I don't say this to everyone and I don't want to admit this publicly, but here goes. There are some tests that I see every day of the week, right? So I know the answer to them. But if you gave them to me, <laughs> I wouldn't remember them because my memory is not that kind of memory. Words I'm really good with, visual stuff not so much. And so, you know, sometimes I say to patients, look, I practice this every day and I still don't get it all right. And they, it's important for them to hear that, that mm, mm. there is a range of normals so that when we're interpreting our tests, I'm going to get to your point, um, when we're interpreting the tests, we take into account there is a range. There is a range of what's normal. So, um, to, so to answer the question of what happened, oh, well, sorry, and I was also going to mention sometimes, and not to be a clinical psych, but we might do some uh, just screening of mood stuff, just, you know, a, a mood questionnaire. I also do some personality questionnaires because sometimes we've got a significant psychological overlay mm, that it might yeah. be really relevant for me to objectively look at. So, um you know, obviously, you know, depression and anxiety are big, big issues, but also we see a lot of people that have a lot of uh, 
a focus on their somatic symptoms. So they have a lot of somatizing. So it's really important to understand that maybe that's what's going on um, and, and other types of things. So I might, but not for everybody, I might do that as part of the assessment as well. So the poor person has sat with me for somewhere between five and eight hours. <laughs> we take breaks regularly. We certainly have a lunch break and they're allowed to go outside and run away from me as much as they like, but they have to come back. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, but so, it, does, it does point to the fact that this is very thorough. It's extremely comprehensive. This isn't just an off-the-shelf uh, examination. We, we, we're really using a lot of clinical judgment, a battery of tests, you know, lots of data points from the information that you've received prior to them uh, attending, historical context, you know, uh, good understanding of their, their life, all the battery of tests that you think is clinically appropriate. You know, nothing's sort of left and, and, and trying to understand it, you know, whether it's just from the cognitive functioning or, or adding layers of, you know, uh, psychiatric sort of challenges, um, you know, presentations uh, that can all impact, um, you know, their functioning and, and personality and so on and so forth. So it's a very, very extensive um, assessment and 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 uh, and rightly so because this is you know extremely um, important for whether it's from a medical legal perspective you know or from I think what why we all get into this work you know, for treatment so that someone can therefore be guided by what are their strengths what are their weaknesses how can they go out and and utilize both of those in terms of upping one or you know um, uh, taking advantage you know positive psychology type scenario of, of, of yeah. what they do well um, you know how they can compensate in the future well with 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 the resources they've got and so on so you know it's fantastic it's fantastic to hear <clears throat> Yeah, and, and so I think that that's really, as you say, the real value of what we do. And sometimes I, I know some some people want to, you know, assess the people they've been treating, but one of the advantages of sending them off to someone else is that it's this one-off, very objective, you can work with this in therapy, but your person, you know, your relationship's not involved in that, that I've got a, a thermometer and I've got a very clear indication of where the person's at. So um, so anyway, we do all the tests and then what we do is we would then spend another, in my case, I use a lot of electronic scoring, so usually about an hour, but some people might need two hours to actually score the tests. So take the person's answers and then, you know, mark if they're right or wrong and so on, and then compare that to the normative data. So by that I mean, you know, other people of the same age, uh, ordinarily it's done on age, it might be on educational level in certain circumstances. And so um, the advent of all these great software means that they do a lot of comparisons and, and stuff for us. So we've got to just interpret it rather than carry out all the stats. <laughs> well, that's not that's not where we should be spending our time. I mean, honestly, you know, thank, thankfully we're, we're at a time in our history where you know, computers can do this stuff. And it also means accuracy. You know, the truth is previously, um, and even today, people who are hand scoring, they're making errors because there's a oh. human being involved, you know, and, and your expertise lies in, in the interpretation um, and obviously the administration in selecting which, you know, which, which uh, tests to, to conduct. But it's really an interpretation that we want 
you spending your time on. Um, you know, if, if I were to try and score any of these things, I'll tell you what, you know, you might do it in an hour. I, I think I'd do it in five or six. <coughs> you know, it'll be a sec- the second day would be in the in, in, in the scoring without even doing any interpretation. So, um, no, it's wonderful, it, it, you know, utilising this. And it also means people can have really – a uh, good understanding of the reliability of what we're doing uh, as well. Not that it wasn't there previously, but it, it's just gone up a notch. Agreed. And, in fact, I, I was a very early adopter, although it's common now, of the electronic administration of the tests. So I use the iPads to administer the, the Wexler scales. I've always done the executive function tests on the computer so that um, – the administration errors are almost nil. It, it's standardised <laughs> even more. Exactly. It's brilliant. It's brilliant, yeah. 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 Plus we can keep a good distance too. We don't have to be as close to people with the books, you know. And, and interestingly, and maybe I can ask you this question, have mm. people become uh, more engaged because they're, you know, looking at a, a at a screen, and it tends to just be a little bit more entertaining than than us delivering it as as well. Has it helped with some attentional uh, capacities over over time? Have you noticed anything, even if it's you know uh, uh, some of just your impressions? Uh, but have you noticed any any improvement from previously? Because obviously you've been doing this for for some time, and you've observed both both sides of the coin. Absolutely, I. It is my view that. For some reason, particularly when we first started using them, people are definitely more engaged with the iPads. They they see it as something new and because the way that they work is they can touch on the screen to give their answers, like on if there's a puzzle and there's a piece missing, they can touch on the one they want, which ordinarily would have been them looking at it in a book and saying to me, I think it's number three. Um, they can just touch it on the screen. So firstly, it goes a bit faster, but secondly, the Somehow people just enjoy that. Mm. And definitely with children and adolescents, when we say we're all, we'll do the test on the iPad now, they're, because that's the way they're used to dealing with information now. So it, it makes us seem up to date, not necessarily ahead of the pack, but up to date because it looks a bit old-fashioned to be bringing out these old books and turning the pages over for people. And so people, and when, when we first got them, which is now some years ago, the, um, there was a little bit of resistance. Well, there was curiosity, but a little bit of resistance in the older population. So as I mentioned, I get a lot of yeah. the, the elderly query dementias and they were like, oh, I can't touch that. So I had, um, early on, I used to buy people a stylus so that they could, they didn't actually physically t- put their finger on the iPad, but they could touch it with it and they could keep their stylus. Uh, these days people are willing to touch the iPad, so it's it's better. But, yes, there's definitely been increased engagement, I think, and I also think it makes us just look a little more modern because mm. there is this sort of feeling sometimes that we're a bit old-fashioned. Well, I mean, those old forms, you know, I mean, we've got we've got a whole oh. library that we previously used to do and, 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 and I just look at them and... I don't know, it feels like you're in a hospital setting with, with you know, old, archaic sort of systems. You know, hospital system does a wonderful job, but, you know, some of the things that you see is just like it's form after form after form. It's, it, it's quite awful. So, um, and I can see that the, the early adoption, you know, that, that hesitation would have been there. And, and, and I, I, I'm assuming 
over time that's lessening because you know older persons you know are more and more engaged over time because there's lots of advantages and and, and they're becoming more familiar with their with their you know, smartphones and so on so <laughs> um yeah wonderful wonderful so the scoring gets gets done yeah. predominantly electronic. Obviously, there's some components that, that you need to do yourself and then you're integrating all the information that you've put together, um, you know, and that, that, that takes, you know, an hour or two to, to, to do. Yes. So then the real work starts. <laughs> I say to people that the amount of time I spend with them face-to-face is usually at least the amount of time I need to spend on the report. Mm. Now, I have to say I'm probably a pretty quick report writer. Most of my colleagues who are listening now are going, Debbie, that's not enough time. But anyway, um, I, I've worked a lot on trying to, to what's the word, uh, make it uh, quicker and easier, uh, streamline. But, um, yeah, so but the thing, uh, particularly in the medical, in, in a normal sort of uh, just a, you know, referred by their GP or their neurologist, have they got dementia? That is a relatively quick report. We, we lay out what the history is, we lay out what the results are, and then we put them all together to make some kind of conclusion. So that doesn't take as long. What really takes the time is the more medico-legal type reports where we have to go through every document. So all of the hospital records from when they had the injury, all of the previous assessments, all the neurologists they've seen and psychiatrists and other neuropsychologists analyse their data, compare it to our data. So it's a lot of data. And one of the things I think, um, one of the comments I sometimes receive from from the doctors is, oh, I look straight for the neuropsychologist report because they always do a lovely summary of all the medical data. (laughs) So it's nice they appreciate it. But it, 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 it's also fascinating because it also is quite telling that this is how we, 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 we work. Our brains just go for the summary. It's like, you know, give me the fastest way for me to understand this. And if someone's done, done the job, and obviously there's a great level of trust in, in, in the neuropsych's work, is that I can just go there and, and I can get a good glimpse and understanding, you know, to inform my own practice. But it, it's fascinating. It's fascinating how, how, you know, we all take shortcuts, right? There's, there's a cognitive load that goes with trying to read it all. So we just say, ah, to hell with that. I'm, I'm going to go for, you know, what, what's <laughs> we, we know Debbie's about. obsessive enough. <laughs> and this is what's actually interesting in, in our work is we also find that, you know, specialists are not, uh, 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 I mean, there's, there, there's a cognitive bias not to go against what a fellow colleague has written and, 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 you know, there's a fear around it and, you know, there's that whole imposter syndrome and so on and so forth. And so, you know, what you're talking about is very data-driven um, and, and, it, and it just says this is what the, the, the data is telling us and this is how to interpret it as well. And so this is my clinical impression from, you know, all the data that we've got, <clears throat> you know, irrespective of what others are saying and, and, and that stands for so much. I agree, and I'm sorry I spoke over you, but but I think what people also recognise is that the the neuropsychologists do tend to be a little bit obsessive about all the data and all the data in a row. So I have to have everything into chronological order. And the thing is that makes this really strong argument, this really strong story about what happened. Here's how the person was. 
here's what happened to them. And you would be surprised how frequently there are significant errors in summary hospital reports. Mm. So because I'm a bit obsessive, I go back to the actual, um, uh, you know, when it was written on the day the person came in, this is what their score was and this is what we did and this is what the scan said. And often that is summarised incorrectly in the discharge summary. They get the scans around the wrong way and it scores wrong and stuff like that. So it's it's important to go back to the original data, the original entries. So, and that's part of, you know, that's me. Um, well, that's the source of truth. It, it is, it is. And if we're saying someone had an injury of this, because this is crucial to our answer. So we have to know, did the person have an injury of sufficient severity to cause the problems they're complaining of? Because that's the ultimate question of what's the basis of their concerns? Is it that they have had a head injury and it's caused these problems or has something else happened? Is the person overly focused on these things? Uh, do they need a different kind of treatment? So getting the basis of the injury right is is absolutely crucial so a lot of my you know my time is spent on that and I try and lay that out in order so that then we build up to and here's what happened at my assessment here's the behavior here's what the family said here's what the test scores are I compare that to how we think they were before and then I combine all of that information together to make a conclusion. So the conclusion might be, yes, they had a moderate to severe brain injury and that's left them with these kind of prob problems, bang, bang, bang. That's going to impact on, you know, they mightn't be able to go back to be an electrician anymore because they can't uh, concentrate enough on the details. You know, that might be an issue, those types of things. Sure. So, um, yeah, so it's a data-driven conclusion and, usually some recommendations about what to do. Yeah, love it. And that's obviously where someone else can then take over and, and, and work with the client, whether it's, you know, from a therapy perspective or an OT perspective where how people can be supported to live you know, life as, as functionally as possible with, with their condition or even what the prognosis might, might look like for the future. Uh, exactly. Uh, a brain injuries, uh, out of curiosity, uh, brain injuries um, fairly stable over time does it does it get to a certain sort of point after the injury where we kind of have a general consensus that you know after I don't know two years that their brain functioning is going to to you know remain at that level I know there's all this conversation you know at least in pop psychology about you know uh, how malleable the the, the the mind can be and, and obviously, you know, there, there is plenty of evidence to demonstrate that early intervention and so on. But uh, at what point do we, on a sort of rule of thumb and not talking about any specific case, but do we go out and say, you know, where, where your functioning is at the moment, you know, based on you know, an acquired brain injury, this is not going, well, this is your, your new baseline. <clears throat> so well, the answer is it depends, but here goes. Sure. So, it depends on the severity of the brain injury. So in the more mild injury, so what, what would be classified 
at the medical level as a concussion or mild. The um, maximum improvement is usually achieved within a few months. Mm -hmm. So the recovery is actually quite quick from those types of injuries. So that's why it's important to go back to the data about how severe was the injury. In contrast, what you're thinking of is the, the more severe end, the moderate to severe brain injuries. So they have an injury ordinarily that includes a loss of consciousness or a coma for a period of time. Then as they come out of the coma, there's a period of confusion. So And then there's sort of this rapid recovery as they come out of that post-traumatic amnesia state. They, they're often having rehab in hospital. They're walking and talking again and starting to remember things. So there's this kind of rapid, well, what's to the family seems like very rapid recovery. And we've got to be really careful about people getting their hopes up that the person's going to keep recovering at that rate because that rate sort of slows off a bit. So then they come out of hospital and start to face, you know, the reality of a, a changed world for them and whether or not they can go back to work and so on. So the, the research evidence, which is something that we do combine with our data in our reports, is that for most of the moderate to severe brain injuries, maximum recovery is achieved in that 18 months to two years spot. So around about that time, cognitively, things tend to plateau. So if we go and test someone at two years and then we test them again at five years, usually the results are pretty stable. This is for adults with fully developed brains. Sure, sure. Children, it's a different story. Understand. Um, but the, other, the thing that changes, though, is how they're coping. Mm. So what happens to the environment around them? So they might start off that they've got a partner, but over time the changes might not be something the partner can tolerate, and so the partner might go out of their life and they might need to be reliant on, on their family of origin. So that changes their psychosocial situation. Um, sometimes their behaviours, despite all of the rehab, so, you know, the people with the more severe brain injuries are often physically reasonably well, but they have behaviours where they're impulsive, where they say things without thinking, that can be quite insulting and upsetting. And so there they are living with their parents, but they can't really keep up their friendships because they their friends have moved on with their lives they haven't been able to move on with their life and they're upsetting everyone when they go to the shops because they're saying impulsive things. And so, so what happens is that cognitively things haven't changed, but their environment changes mm. and they, they, they struggle to cope. And so that's when they start to turn up for other kinds of treatment and it looks like they've gotten worse, but what's happened is they're, coping mechanisms have changed that you know like yeah. they've not adjusted and their family hasn't adjusted to what's happened around them i mean even, so even just those two items the the social support that you know erodes over time or is lost over time you know as psychologists we know you know i mean that, that that's often the number one predictor of well-being is 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 having good people around you that can you know meet all those needs, remind you about your needs, you know, moderate your own emotions, you know, they, they buffer at so many levels and, and, and when that context is taken away, 
it's uh, you know we, we, we see we see um, you know often devastating affects for someone psychologically. Can you talk us through a, li- <clears throat> a little bit about the the, the person? I want to get back onto that personality oh. uh, question because it, it's it's intersecting here now as well. Uh, what are the most sort of common personality changes that that you would um, uh, hear from loved ones that have occurred post um, you know uh, acquired brain injuries you know concussions accidents so on so again it depends on the severity of the injury so in a in a in the so I'll start with the concussions and I'll work up to the more severe ones so with the concussions there is as you probably are aware that even though cognitively the recovery often occurs fairly early on there is this subset of people that get very prolonged symptoms the post-concussional syndrome so they remain really concerned about headaches and dizziness and brain fog and all of these types of things that aren't uh, amenable to treatment uh, to the traditional sorts of treatment and and over time what happens is that turns from being a physiological thing into starting to reflect some more psychological elements of the situation so it starts off maybe it's it becomes more of an adjustment disorder they never quite get over the injury they became they become really focused on the idea that no one seems to understand how severe their problems are and they get very focused on them. And some of that group move into the more somatization territory where they become a little bit obsessed with it all. So um, what their families report is the overwhelming dominance of these symptoms in their lives. You know, they can't go back to work because they're too tired, they've got too much fatigue, they can't deal with bright lights, so we have to all sit in the dark all the time and stuff like that. So their changes are around this focus on these symptoms and their effect. So they're very, you know, they are the absolutely most challenging group to deal with because they're often high-functioning people and these the thinking style becomes quite ingrained. So that, that can be a really... Uh, difficult group. Moving along to the more moderate to severe brain injuries, though, the personality changes they get can be quite quite difficult for people to understand, and they need a lot of psychoeducation around it. So I want to say, and it's not always the case, but sometimes what happens is the sort of personality people had before becomes amplified. So someone who is a bit of a chatterbox and a social butterfly can become quite outrageously impulsive and overbearing and won't stop talking and can't control themselves. So that becomes sort of, I think that is a behavioural thing, but most people see that as a personality thing of they've become more of what Mm. they were. Some people... The the moderating, uh, there's an impulse that can't be held back. So their capacity to moderate, uh, their capacity to downregulate often goes with the with the injury so whatever their nature is tends to turn up that volume um generally speaking that that you know as you say if someone you know is quite quite social that amplifies i'm assuming the same occurs where if someone is short and irritable and angry they you know 
that that ramps up and and you know the tolerance level um, to anything uh, or to most things can can you know decline as well. Exactly, and we th- we think of that, I guess, as often where people have got a lot of executive difficulties or the higher cognitive functions aren't working. There, there's an organic lack of regulation of those things. So. Um, so all of that changes the way that they are in relationships. It changes the level to which they get along with people. And that's why, and I mean, you know, your family hangs in there no matter what, but other people like friends often don't because that becomes unexpected. You know, often early on they try really hard, but they don't understand that the person's still there, but the brain injury is talking to them, you know, and the brain injury is making them do these things. And they're often, it is a real struggle to get control of those things. Over time, with lots of feedback and therapy, it can be dampened down, but it can be, you know, really problematic. And um, and that's why it's hard for them to work. It's hard for them to um, keep their friends, as I said. Uh, sometimes I've, I've certainly had people that have, form new relationships post-injury and and that actually works well because the person didn't know how they were so they're not in this constant state of oh but you were never that irritable before um so that's helpful the other thing is that the age at which the injury occurs is a significant issue for that so typically the most the most people that are having um traumatic brain injuries from car accidents are young men in that sort of 18 to 25 age group and what's also happening for young men in 18 to 25 age group is they're establishing relationships establishing their career usually still playing some sport and stuff and they're but but as they move through that age they people start to settle down they've you know got getting get married or forming a you know long-term relationship they're moving ahead in their careers and the person that's had the head injury isn't doing any of that by virtue of their head injury and so what they see is their friends just move on without them. And it 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 becomes that that loneliness that I mentioned, that they they can't they need to in many ways be encouraged to form new friendships because you know that that just brings up the issues all the time when they keep trying to revisit that. So much loss is in there. It, it, yeah. the, 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 the change that that, that occurs is, is immense and so sudden, so sudden. Do, do similar things occur on the in in the geriatric space, well, generally geriatric space, with you know the likes of dementia and and, and Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's? I know that obviously they're, they're they're more gradual. There isn't usually a strong onset, you know, uh, but we start to recognise, you know, at a point well you know something's a bit off or they're becoming a little bit more agitated is, is the same regulation type of expectation there that as as our um cognitive decline occurs our our capacity to 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 emotionally manage down regulate um also declines is that a similar trajectory that you've seen it, it can be not always. So sure, sure. typically um, there's sort of a subset of the early dementias that often escape, escape diagnosis for a little while because their social skills and their language skills are well-preserved. 
So they will often come and they're well made up and they're they're very polite and they make an effort to, you know, respond appropriately. And so when someone does that in a 15, 20 minute sort of medical interview, that doesn't give any insight into the mm. fact that they maybe can't remember what you said <laughs> because they've got all these social skills that that make they make the right sounds at the right time. Sure. As if they are remembering. Things. They can compensate. Uh, they can gloss over. They can be a bit more vague. <clears throat> you, you don't catch it when it's occurring most of the time, unless you're living with them day to day and you've had a conversation yesterday. And it's like, what do you mean? We spoke about that, and uh, they don't have a recollection. It's it's hard to catch in short social bursts. Exactly, exactly. And so this group often comes to us with the doctors sort of saying, look, the family say there's something wrong, but I don't know, you know, and it's not until you really pin them down. And when you try to do a memory test, they're like, oh, dear, I was never good at that. No, don't ask me that, you know, and there's all these social things to avoid the Mm. fact that they actually don't know the answer. So for that group, they often can be deteriorating cognitively quite a lot before they come to notice because they've got that saving grace of the social skills. Mm. However, there's the other end of the spectrum. So in the middle are um, a traditional Alzheimer type dementia where the family do tend to notice a little bit of emotional change, you know, a little bit more irritable, a little bit more, all those other things. It tends to be the memory they focus on rather than the personality changes, but there can be when we ask about it, they usually are subtle personality changes, but the memory is the thing that they're really noticing. But there is a subgroup where it's called frontotemporal dementia behavioural variant where there's very little cognitive change and it's all about personality change. So these people are, so it's a type of dementia, so it's in the older age group, where their behaviours become impulsive so they suddenly are eating lollies all the time and having ice cream for dinner and, and stuff like that. They say things that are often quite sexual when they come for their assessment and they're a bit touchy-feely and um, they do things that are out of character. Their family is like, I don't know who this person is because that is not how they were. So they're at the other extreme mm. of where, and, and I, I saw one fellow that um, had got caught up in some kind of online scam because he didn't have the sure. you know the ability to stop himself of because you know he was quite impulsive and acting without thinking and so you know these people are very vulnerable very mm. very vulnerable um i've seen um several where there's been a criminal question about behaviors that seem to have come on suddenly that are out of character for them and they're charged with these these awful offences and so the question is is this this person or is it a dementia that's causing this behaviour you know and they get treated differently obviously in the legal system if that's the case so yes there can be both extremes in the older age group that are quite a challenge it's very much dependent on obviously not that i'm no, very much about this at all, but you know, as as the the brain decays, depending on where it decays, will 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 produce yes. what res, you know results, and hence why the 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 assessments look at so many um, you know variants and effectively parts of the brain to say where is it decaying and where is it at its you know um, age appropriate level. You mentioned yes. before, which which 
jumped out at me that I wanted to, to follow up on um, just because I don't know anything about this and, and obviously the word is usually attributed to a particular type of presentation, Parkinson's. You, you mentioned that there can be, you know, cognitive uh, uh, difficulties that comes along with that and obviously most of us know Parkinson's from, you know, the likes of Michael J. Fox and, and others who, you know, we, we see the tremors and as the tremors um, uh, deteriorate or degenerate over, over time and becomes more and more prominent. Uh, what are the, the um, cognitive implications with, 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 with Parkinson's? So the, um, the early descriptions of Parkinson's disease assumed that, they, that cognition was unaffected, but over time, with more research and more uh, examination of subtle difficulties, it can be the case. It's not 100% the case. There's a subset of people that seem to be un, you know, cognitively unaffected. But the um, main changes are they get um, bradyphrenia, which is sort of slowness of thinking. They um, also get executive difficulties, so the, the frontal lobe planning, problem-solving type difficulties. And they often get quite significant visual... Well, they often have some significant visuospatial difficulties. So they struggle with, you know, drawing things and, and, that, and partly that's affected because of their motor skills are affected, but partly that it seems to be their perception of the visual information is, is changed as well. So it's a different presentation generally to an Alzheimer presentation, but it's, it can include some cognitive difficulties. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to say for the benefit of our audience, but the truth is, it's actually for me. What is the difference? What what are we looking at the difference when we look at Alzheimer's and, and, and dementia? I know they're very closely related, but but at the same time, I I, I believe there are you know significant differences, and they've got different terminology because they they, they come from a different space. Or are we in the world of you know where now we call things? you know, uh, autistic spectrum disorder and previously we used to have, you know, terms that would, you know, put someone in a, in, in the mould case, um, which we no longer use. Um, uh, uh, how, do, how, how do we know, well, what, what, what are the differences? Okay, well, now, um, some Have of my I friends who work specifically, <laughs> but, well, no, my friends who work in the area are going to get very mad with me. I think of <laughs> as that, I, I think dementia is a general term in the sense of the, uh, to convey the idea that there's been some kind of neurological decline. But, um, and, but we have specific, so, the um, the DSM-5 likes us to use neurocognitive disorder and then to specify what type we think it is. So the types are usually associated with the, the medical information. So I've said a few times the Alzheimer type because in, um, in life, you know, we assume that a pattern is an Alzheimer-like presentation, but we can't actually do a brain biopsy to check if they've got the actual changes. We say, look, the confluence of these things 
you know, brain atrophy and this and the behaviour and the decline and so on all suggest that. But, um, but yeah, so there's a particular pattern that is an Alzheimer-like presentation, but there are other kinds of dementia. So you can get a Lewy body dementia, which uh, has a different presentation to the frontotemporal dementias that I mentioned and so on. So all of them are dementias in the sense that they are a decline a neurologically based decline in function, but it's not necessarily the, the general term dementia doesn't specify sort of what type we think it is. Mm. So, yeah. So the, what would you classify as, uh, and obviously it's not diagnostic uh, uh, from a DSM perspective, but what, what are the Alzheimer's type? Obviously you've been doing this for a long period of time. You know, when, when you, use that phrase, what does that correlate with from your experience? Uh, do you mean in terms of a clinical presentation, what that looks yeah, like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For us, you know, so I met, I met someone <laughs> or a family member or, you know, a good yep. friend because um, uh, it, it's no different to, you know, in, in my comments at language, you know, people talk about Asperger's, for, for example, oh. and, and, you know, depends if I'm talking to, you know, uh, uh, um, someone outside of the industry or someone within the industry. And sometimes when we even use it in the industry, even though it's not in the DSM anymore, there is an understanding of what that means and you know, where they would be on the ASD scale now in the, you know, higher functioning uh, part. Uh, uh, but, you know, from, from your perspective with the you know, Alzheimer's type, there, there, there's some signifiers oh. or at least ways that um, the layperson would, would observe that. Sure. So the typical onset of an Alzheimer type uh, disease is in later life. So we normally see it in a 60, 65 plus age group. So the first thing is you're thinking about an older age group. There are exceptions. There are a very rare cases of younger onset dementia, but we're not going to think about them because they're not a typical. Um, so the onset tends to be insidious so it sneaks up on people there's no sudden there's no stroke or something that starts it it's just insidious so people tend to go i saw mum at christmas time last year and she was okay but when i saw her this year she just got all confused with the fruitcake recipe and couldn't remember this and that so it's sort of sneak sneaked up on them it wasn't obvious that there was a problem but looking back there is the kind of duration of that insidious onset before people get to the doctor tends to be in the order of 12 to 18 months. So normally it's been going on about 18 months when people get to see me because they have to go to their GP who then sends them to someone else who then sends them, you know, it's all a bit of a thing. And I assume they've been masking this for some time. So th th this is from the time they actually, it starts being noted um, yes. versus where the decline is more, more likely to have been occurring but compensated for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the it's very likely, I'm not as au okay fait with this research as I, I should be to answer the question, but the neurological changes have already been happening. Like the, the brain tangles are already there. You know, they're not as many, but they're starting. So, um, yeah, so the insidious onset and the primary complaint is memory. So if the primary complaint is behaviour change, then we would think of another diet. We would look at other diagnoses. Or if the primary complaint was sudden visual hallucinations or something that's different, different. 
So the Alzheimer's complaint typically tends to be memory. Just a forgetfulness, just not remembering things without a list and and just, you know, I rang you last week and told you this, Mum, why didn't you remember it? That kind of thing. And so, and that usually there, there is a slow decline over time. So it's slow onset, slow decline, primarily forgetfulness. Other things can change and there's people out there going, oh, Debbie, you didn't say this. But that's the primary thing sure, that people sure. go to the doctor with. <laughs> then what happens <laughs> is when we, um, when we do an assessment, the defining features are memory impairment, but they're usually by the 18-month mark are some changes in the intellectual functions so that the problem-solving, planning, which is why sometimes, you know, if people are getting mixed up with their recipes, it's not just forgetfulness, it's sort of a bit of disorganisation, not getting the recipe in the right order for it to work, for example, not being able to coordinate the shopping list properly because they can't plan it. So it, and those two things are what combine. And then there may also be some mild language changes, which to the observer looks like uh, a little bit of word finding difficulties, can't quite think of the right word of what they want to say. You know, um, get, get me some such and such at the shop, you know, the stuff we need, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and then on my testing, that would show up as uh, maybe some reduced verbal fluency, some reduced naming skills. So usually by that time, we can see some subtle changes on testing. There may or may not be changes on the brain scan. So the first thing, when someone goes to the doctor and complains about their memory, the first thing they'll do is a brain scan. Um, and in the early stages, it may not necessarily show up. So an Alzheimer presentation in the early stages may not show up with changes on the scan. It may. There may be some cerebral atrophy, but that often we see a little bit further down the down the track. So the other important thing, I guess, just as a if people are listening, um, is that it is important to go through their doctor because there are a lot of medical conditions that can seem like the early stages of an Alzheimer's disease. And it's really important. They're treatable, they're reversible. It's good news if you've got those. So it's important that they be excluded which is one of the reasons why your neuropsychologist tends to see people further down the track after they've been to their GP, maybe been to a specialist, either a neurologist or a geriatrician, so that they've looked at other things that could be causing the problem and then they might come to us because essentially um, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. It's exclude all the other possible things that could be causing this. Debbie, you're an absolute wealth of knowledge and I could, I could, uh, you know, just keep throwing questions at you and it's so, so fascinating, you know, a, a space to find out more about and, and, and also see the great value and, and, and obviously it, it, it's very selective about when someone would go out and engage in neuropsych because of the extensive 
time, um, you know, that, that that's required to do something in, in that more formal space. If someone is in, in that space and in that need, uh, uh, how can they get in contact with you? How can they find out more about, you know, where you work and, and you know, the, the um, uh, uh, you know, the possibility of, you know, engaging, even if, if it's just to start a conversation with you? Sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm in Brisbane. So I, I'll say my website. So if you, uh, for my more legal cases, it's debbieanderson.com.au. Um, for the more general cases, um, it's BNC, Brisbane Neuropsychology Clinic. So just bnc.com.au. If you're um, uh, uh, not in Brisbane and you want to find a neuropsychologist, um, the College of Clinical Neuropsychologists has a Facebook page. So if you look up APS College of oh, CCN, um, that'll direct you to some more information about neuropsychology and uh, hopefully you can find your way to your local neuropsychologist. Absolutely wonderful. One, one, one question before I let you go is obviously it's very um, easy for us to understand when we would go out and seek a neuropsych in, in the space of a you know, uh, traumatic brain injury, probably a little bit less on some of those other categories. How, uh, how would you recommend or, or, or suggest to people listening uh, at what sort of stage should we begin thinking about, you know, seeing a neuropsych? Do we, do we start with our GP and discuss those, you know, concerns? Should we reach out directly to a neuropsych in our, in, in our area? Because obviously there, there, there's a very you know, uh, uh, significant need, but at the same time uh, we need to understand how to use neuropsychs for, for our listeners. How, how do we best, best do that? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Um, look, I many GPs are absolutely wonderful and they know what we do, but some GPs don't actually know what neuropsychologists are all about. So um, it, it, it's really difficult to know what the best thing is to do. A lot of the specialists, like the neurologists and that, do know what we do, but that's just because we meet them at the hospitals and so on. Um, so, but starting with your GP is a good point because, as I said, particularly with the older age group, there may be other things that can be done before you come to neuropsych. I don't want to put people off coming to see us, but I also am, am conscious of the fact that, you know, it's a very big investment of time, money and energy. And you, there might be other obvious things that need to be followed up first. So starting with your GP... But you also, if you've had an injury, you might be under work cover and or um, an insurance agency, and they would be the ones that would certainly, ref if you mention to them, oh, so the main thing is to mention that you're having those problems. So I'm having some memory problems. I'm really having trouble concentrating and thinking clearly. I think I'd like this assessed. And that's a signal to the referrer that we need to think about how can we get that assessed properly to understand what's going on? So that's sort of a, a hint that they might uh, consider referring you for neuropsych. Um, they, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, so it, it's important to say what the problems are and maybe ask, you know, do you think a neuropsych assessment would help? 
because maybe the answer is yes, maybe it's no. You certainly can reach out to your local neuropsych. We try to have information on our, you know, our blogs and web, web pages and that about certain conditions. So sometimes you can get enough, enough information to keep going that says maybe I don't need an ass- assessment yet or, or whatever. So certainly I would encourage people to have a look around at the information that's available. If you have a specific condition, there are often websites like the, you know, um, that are the specific for those conditions as well. I think it's really wise in terms of becoming informed uh, first and foremost, so you understand, you know, what a neuropsych might be able to offer and obviously what your presentations are. Secondly is to offer your health professionals your, you know, really good description of what you're experiencing, the symptoms, you know, and then, and then they can use their professional clinical uh, consideration to ask themselves, you know, do we go to a neurologist? Do we go to a neuropsych? Do we go to an optometrist to see if, if, if there, there's issues there or whatever it might be? Um, and lastly is, you know, that you're always, you always have that opportunity to, to contact your neurologist directly, um, you know, if you see the value in, in that. And, and you know, I'm, uh, I'm obviously very biased, but at the same time, um, for good reason, there's such great value in, in you know, all, all, all disciplines of, of psychology. And I've certainly learned a lot from you today. So big, big thank you for your time and your expertise and sharing with, with, with me and the listeners and um, yeah, I, I hope that uh, you know as we as we go along, you know, there's more and more uh, capacity for for um, uh, 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 well interest in neuropsych from our up and coming uh, 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 trainees um, to come through and, and and take on the ranks of you know people like yourself because you know it's extremely valuable. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It's been lovely to speak with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.